Tonight's episode is brought to you by all our wonderful Patreon patrons and Studio Headphones, Scandinavian-designed wireless headphones with free worldwide shipping. Rosh Terrio was a fairly normal child. Growing up in a fairly conservative, religious family, he was acutely aware of the compelling attraction of religion, despite growing up to hate it himself. That was until he discovered his own unique religious path and decided to form a cult. Difficult to imagine he ever held good intentions, he went from eccentric leader to outright savage despot, marrying a handful of wives, fathering over 20 children and murdering at least one of his followers before police caught up with him. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Dark Histories, Season 2, Episode 13. I'm Ben. I hope this episode finds you all in good health. This week, we're going to be looking at a fairly grim episode. So, before we start, I'm going to say two fairly quick things. Firstly, this episode comes with a bit of a warning. I'm not a gore hound. Um, and I always do try and present the facts and skip over using egregious language. But this episode it does contain some pretty extreme content and it's, it's just the nature of it. Uh, so, you know, fair warning. Secondly, next episode, we'll be doing a good fun mystery because I need to flush this one out of my system. So, for those that haven't switched off already, this is the story of Rosh Terrio and the Ant Hill Kids. Roche Terrio was born on May the 16th, 1947, to Hyacinth and Pierre Terrio. They lived in the French-Canadian area of Saguenay, Quebec, Canada, and he was the second of seven children. His family was working class, but not struggling, and as he grew up, he never complained about his home life, which was, it seems, relatively comfortable. At age six, the family relocated, moving to a small city in southern Quebec. His parents were devoutly religious people and members of the Pilgrims of St. Michael, a religious organisation that often takes the name Beret Blanc, or the White Berets. This was a reference to the White Beret hat they wore as part of the Order's uniform. The White Berets were a strange mix of religion and politics. Born from the Great Depression, they pushed an ideology of democratised consumerism, essentially a giant version of a profit-sharing cooperative. Despite being largely dismissed by economists and they were criticised for their anti-Semitic agenda, they drew in followers by promoting their message via The Journal, a pamphlet delivered door-to-door by members of the church. Roche's parents would often drag him around the city of Thetford Mines as they undertook their religious duty, dressed in their militaristic berets, spreading the word. Naturally, Roche caught flack for this and he grew up to despise the white berets and organised religion in general. Outside of their religious fervour, however, his parents were seen by the local communities as well-meaning and the family pretty unexceptional. Rosh attended the local school until 7th grade and was praised by his teachers for his intellect. Unfortunately, 7th grade was as far as the local school stretched and rather than travel, Rosh, along with his brothers and sisters, all finished their education upon graduation and instead chose to work or study at home. Rosh took to reading the Old Testament and teaching himself Bible studies in English. 
Later on in his life, he complained about his childhood, insisting that his parents were drunks, that they beat him and at one point they pushed him down the stairs. He wrote in a letter during his later life that I am from a family in which I was mistreated and beaten worse than a dog from the age of 2 until 14. When my father, having beaten me, threw me out of the house and told me never to set foot in it again. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions on the truth of the statement, however, friends of the family don't remember any such behaviour, and his father simply stated on the issue, I never beat the boy, but I punished him when he needed it. Roche also mentioned how he was born from an incestuous relationship, though once again, there was no evidence for this either. Either way, it all seems unlikely, and given all the evidence, and as much as Roche would later fantasise about his victimisation, his early life seemed to have passed by uneventfully. On November the 11th, 1967, aged 20 years old, Roche married 17-year-old Francine Grenier. She was a quiet, unassuming girl from the neighbouring town. They moved to Montreal and spent the early days of their marriage in happy enough circumstances. Francine gave birth to two sons, Roche Sylvain in 1969 and Francois in 1971. Roche worked as a chimney inspector and things seemed, once again, unspectacular but comfortable for the Terrio's new family. In retrospect, however, this was to be probably the last unspectacular point in the life of Roche Terrio, and after developing stomach ulcers in 1971, things quickly spiralled into a pit of depravity that at this point seems world to part. After visiting a doctor about his stomach ulcers in 1971, Roth was advised to undergo surgery to have them removed. This was a procedure that was fairly common at the time. His surgery, however, was not a shining success and whilst it removed the ulcers, it left Roche suffering from dumping syndrome a side effect of the surgery that left him with constant abdominal pains. He was prescribed medication, however, he quickly tossed these out and instead took to self-medicating with alcohol. He became obsessed with medicine and anatomy, and he complained that he was dying, which unfortunately was not true. He lost work and the family moved back to Thetford Mines where Roche took up woodworking and started a small business, selling various sculptures and small household items such as mugs and plates. He also showed new signs of overt sexuality, a violent about turn from his previous personality, and he also joined a local arm of Freemasonry named Le Club Arami, getting involved in local politics. All the while, he drank heavily, and by 1976 was frequently visiting Quebec City at the weekends using his woodworking sales as an excuse to carry out affairs and pick up women whilst his wife stayed at home to care for their children. This quickly proved too much for Francine, who left him as his woodworking business ran into the ground. Bankrupt and unemployed, he bounced between sleeping in his car and living with a woman from Quebec City he had been having an affair with named Giselle. The honeymoon period of this new relationship was not to last for long, however, as Giselle quickly discovered the depth of Roche's drinking problem. Fortunately, a saviour was on the way, in the form of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a religious sect that Roche had become interested in and quickly converted to from his Catholic upbringing he so hated. 
The Seventh-day Adventist Church is a denomination of Protestant Christianity. The followers, called Adventists, like most religions, lie on a spectrum. However, in general, they could be categorized as fundamentalists, believing in the Holy Trinity, observing the Sabbath on Saturday, the seventh day in the Christian and Jewish calendar, and the imminent second coming of Christ. Followers believe that a book of judgment is studied in heaven to see who will be admitted, and in Christian mortalism, or the concept that the soul itself is not inherently mortal. Advocates of a conservative and holistic lifestyle, anti-gay and anti-abortion themes are nailed on. Vegetarian is also advocated, and kosher foods are prohibited. All in all, it's a pretty fundamentalist bunch. Their holistic and healthy lifestyle pursuits especially appealed to Roche, however, and he dove into this new religion head first, quickly quitting drinking and smoking, and he met with a small group of local Adventists led by a Guadalupean pastor named Pierre Zita every Saturday in a motel to hear him preach on the second coming of Christ and the importance of conservative living. As he was still currently unemployed, he rather ironically, given the similar upbringing he so despised, began selling Adventist literature door to door, and with his enthusiasm for the doctrine and obvious charisma, he excelled. In early 1977, Pierre Zita, taking note of Roche's obvious talent and social skill, put him in charge of a programme to help potential followers of the church quit smoking. Roche embraced this role as a workshop leader, and by late summer of 1977, he had attracted a small local following of devout stragglers. They were mostly young people, disillusioned or suffering grief in one way or another. They consisted of 21-year-old Solange Poilard, 19-year-old Chantal Labrie, 18-year-old Francine Laflamme, 20-year-old Nicole Ruel, 18-year-old Maurice, 24-year-old Claude Houlet, 24-year-old José Pelletier, and husband and wife Jacques Chiguer and Maurice Grenier, who were 24 and 23-year-olds respectively. Maurice was not overly keen on the Adventists, nor on Roche, but humouring her husband, she went along as support. One can see the obvious trend that the group was made up mostly of young women who found Roche to be charming, and Roche himself enjoyed the attention his position garnered. The group met up at weekends, staying in Giselle's apartment whilst Roche gave lengthy sermons about the imminent second coming of Christ, an idea that he had by now gone all in on. Roche convinced Giselle to convert to the Adventists, and the members of the group studying at college to promptly drop out. After all, what uses an education when the end of the world is so near? Whether or not convincing the group members to drop out from college was premeditated early steps towards isolation, or driven by bitter jealousy is unknown, but Roche was taking steps to isolate the members of the group from outsiders, even at this point. During the summer of 1977, the group took off together for an Adventist retreat on the banks of Lake Russo, Ontario, and met Gabrielle Lavelle, a nurse from Ontario, and Yolande Junibert, a young Frenchwoman. The pair quickly fell in with the group, and Roche was happy to bring them aboard. Whilst out hiking alone during the retreat, Roche reached a rocky outcrop and looked out over the landscape. He had a divine vision, the sky lit up in a bright white light and the voice of God spoke to him, pointing out that the outcrop was a holy place. God was apparently not so busy that day and keen to give Roche a little bit of tourist information in his downtime. 
This was enough to convince Roche that the best idea for his small group was to move out of the city and after the retreat was over, in October of 1977, he encouraged them all to follow him down to Saint-Marie in the Beauce region of Canada, 65 kilometres south of Quebec. They rented a two-storey house together and opened the Healthy Living Clinic, an alternative medicine venue that used their connections with the Adventists to sell organic food and holistic literature. Roche also commissioned uniforms for the followers, green ankle-length tunics for the women and beige tunics for the men. He himself, as the leader, wore a tunic of dark brown just to ensure that he was to set himself apart from the rest. The clinic actually started doing relatively well and it was making money and attracting more followers. One, Leo Mark Forscher, joined up and quickly sold all of his possessions to fund the clinic along with Jacques Guiguier and his wife Maurice Grenier who did the same. Giselle was becoming itchy watching Roche surrounded by young women every day and so she proposed to him and the pair married on January the 8th 1978 at an Adventist church in Montreal. In March of 1978 a man by the name of Eau fell in with the group. His wife Geraldine was suffering from leukemia and undergoing treatment in a hospital in Quebec. Roche wasn't keen on this treatment and he decided to visit Geraldine and promptly fought with the doctors concerning her course. In particular, he took issue with the amount of drugs the treatment issued her and using this line he convinced the husband to forcibly check her out of the hospital and have her move to the clinic to undergo treatment from Roche instead. Roche prohibited Geraldine's father from visiting the clinic and prescribed the treatment of grape juice and organic foods. Geraldine died in the clinic soon thereafter and Roche told his followers he had brought her momentarily back to life by kissing her, however, you know, when God wants people, he takes them. It was Geraldine's time. Through his anti-smoking workshop, he had met the parents of 19-year-old MS sufferer Gabrielle Nadeau, who now checked their daughter into the clinic to undergo Roche's treatment. The Adventists back in Quebec they weren't overly keen on the news that they were hearing coming from the clinic and relations between Roche and Pierre Zita soured. By the spring of 1978, Zita was meeting with parents of Roche's followers to persuade them to bring their children home and he even tried to convince Giselle to leave Roche. In April, it all proved too much and Roche was officially removed from the Adventist church on Zita's initiative. How much this bothered Roche by this point is up for debate but it certainly didn't stop him from preaching to his followers concerning the second coming of Christ. Instead, he doubled down, marrying his followers together, pairing Claude Alert with Solange Boylard and Jacques Fesset with Nicole Ruel, despite neither couple showing much interest in each other previously. The one problem for Roche now was that he had no more connections with the Adventists, and that led to the drying up of the literature and stock lines for the clinic, and the business suffered financially. The end of the clinic was nearing, and so Roche abandoned the venture, and in July of 1978, moved the group to the small village of Fleur Saint Laurent, where they stayed for a month. On July the 6th, he dropped a bombshell on his ragged band. The world was going to end on February the 17th, 1979. A storm of boulder-sized hail would fall from the sky, there would be earthquakes and huge lightning storms, and they themselves were to become God's chosen. A few days later, they headed out on foot into the Gas Peninsula to find their new, presumably rather temporary, home.
On July 9th, 1978, the group headed out and found a small hill and lake. They erected a ramshackle tent town and began construction on a large communal wood cabin. Roche christened the patch of wilderness that would serve as their home until the end of the world as Eternal Mountain. He gave the followers new uniforms of dark blue wraps, all the easier to work in, something which they had to do an awful lot of. Roche drove them like slaves, ordering them to work 17-hour days to build the cabin and dig a well. Along with the lack of sleep, Roche also rationed their food, and the group quickly learnt not to complain about tiredness or hunger, as any disgruntled opinions were met with further restrictions on the meagre rations they were being issued daily. This all proved too much for some, and Yolande Jeunebert fled to France claiming that her passport was out of date, and Leo Marc Forscher too, now bereft of house or possessions after his donations to the clinic, decided to turn tail out of there with nothing. By September, the cabin was complete, which Roche quickly claimed to the group as a miracle and renamed each of them with biblical names. He didn't skip over himself naturally and took the name Moses, though most of the group affectionately called him Pappy and his wife Giselle Mummy. He then dissolved all marriages within the group except his own and married all of the women so that he now had just the nine wives. He stopped short of marrying Maurice Grenier the wife of Jacques Giguier, who had still not warmed to him and whom he despised all the more for it. Later that evening, Nicole Ruel confessed to Giselle that she had slept with Roche whilst they were building the cabin, and this proved enough to drive her away. Giselle fled into the surrounding woods, however Roche chased her down, choked her and demanded she return, which she eventually did. In the outside world, news of Jonestown had begun to spread and due to this new threat, police began watching Roche's group in November of 1978. Roche preempted trouble from this, and so submitted himself to the police for a psychological evaluation, during which he utilised his skills to inexplicably charm people, telling psychiatrists that the group was a democracy, had no real leader per se, and he told them that they lived in peace and without promiscuity. Since the police had nothing on him, they simply had to admit that whilst he was clearly eccentric, he had done nothing wrong that they were aware of. Far from being unicorns and rainbows for Roche, however, this new life had its own share of stressors and he began to drink again. He abandoned his Adventist diet and began eating and drinking milk, meat and cheese again. The group was struggling financially, however, and so he prostituted Gabrielle to a local grocer in order to supply them all with food. He would stand at the head of the large communal cabin giving long drunken sermons, and if any of the group fell asleep or uttered anything close to a complaint, he would beat them with a four inch thick club or punch them in the torso, a punishment he dished out to a pregnant Maurice, breaking two of her ribs when she ate more than her share of pancake rations one breakfast time. If anyone gave him any reason to feel aggrieved, he made them stand naked outside, come sun, rain or snow. In a letter from Francine, the group's devotion to Pappy, despite their near starvation by Roche, is starkly clear. Hello Pappy, I'm writing about what you said on the subject of nutrition. It's very true that I nibble, a damnable fault that I will never again repeat. The thought of ingesting such a large quantity of food in so little time discourages me even if I work outside the entire day without eating. I ask that you forgive me. If it is stealing, I did not realise it. 
It is this fault which causes my plumpness. I do not want to be a fat and plump servant. That is too ugly next to the man that you are. I don't know what to think about everything and the meaning of my actions. I only know that I will not repeat them and I don't speak lightly. I wish to be a true servant to you, my master. Alert, vigorous, with a clear and lively spirit and well balanced to serve you at every moment of my life. I have a long way to go. Thank you, Pappy. I love you. None of these hardships really mattered to the group's followers as the final day was fast approaching, something which perhaps added to Rosh's current stress. February the 17th, 1979 came and, as we were all well aware, went. The world did, unfortunately for Rosh, not end. Christ did not return and there was no salvation for the followers. Rosh quickly concocted a story that due to God being, well, God, time passed somewhat differently for him than it does for a mere mortal man and this had caused some confusion as to the exact date. The group could rest assured, however, as the end days would come in any time now. This yarn proved enough for most, but in April of 1979, Jacques Fisset left. Roche told the group he had been taken by the devil, and when Maurice Grenier talked to her husband of wishing to leave, Roche ordered her husband Jacques to cut off one of her toes with an axe as punishment. He promptly removed one of her small toes. April proved to be a trying month all round for Roche, as Chantelle Labrie's parents too obtained a court order to remove their daughter from the commune to undergo psychological evaluation. When the police showed up to remove her, Roche simply denied them access and saw them on their way. Four days later, however, a Quebec newspaper published an article titled They are happy and free to leave if they wish, which included an interview with Jacques Fesset, the recent deserter, Ten police showed up in a helicopter which landed on the Eternal Mountain and they arrested Roche for obstruction of justice and ordered him also to take a psychological evaluation which was to be carried out in a Quebec hospital named the Hospital of Robert Giffard. Roche not only aced his evaluation, he actually convinced his testers that he had saved his followers from a life of depravity and drugs. The director of the hospital actually took to calling him Moses and publicly expressed scorn for the poor treatment of Roche by a prejudiced society who was suspicious of his alternative lifestyle. Roche was released early and judged fit to stand trial for obstruction of justice, for which he was given a one-year suspended sentence. During the trial, the media too began printing stories of Roche, portraying him as a victim of prejudgments. The whole affair only proved to strengthen the ties between Roche and his followers and when long-term MS sufferer Gabriel Nadeau fell into a coma and died shortly after his return and the authorities denied Roche from burying her at the foot of the mountain, instead removing her body for autopsy, Roche used both events to strengthen the us versus them mentality he had been carefully fostering. Gabriel's autopsy later returned no evidence of foul play. In November of 1980, Guy Veer made his way out to Eternal Mountain and joined the group. Veer had met Roche in the hospital of Robert Giffard and read about Roche in the media. He had been undergoing treatment at the hospital for depression and as an outsider he was permitted to join under certain conditions. Gabrielle, the group's nurse, examined him and once he was judged fit, Roche permitted him to stay in his storage shed. He was given a small wooden stove, 24 bottles of homebrew beer, two hens, a rooster and one meal per day. 
He was essentially taken in as a slave and forced to chop wood and undertake cabin construction, as well as babysit for the three children of the commune who were not fathered by Roche. All the while, Roche maintained his outsider status. On March the 23rd, 1980, Roche organised a large party for the group. Something special was happening. His two sons from his first marriage, Roche Jr., now 12 years old, and Francois, now 10, were coming to Eternal Mountain to live. Veer was, unsurprisingly, not invited. That same night, Roche decided that Maurice's son, one of the outsider children, needed to be circumcised. Using a blade and a 94% ethanol solution for sterilisation, he took it upon himself to see the job done. At the same time, he administered the ethanol solution orally to the infant as an anaesthetic. The next morning, Samuel was found dead. Roche feigned concern that if Samuel's body was buried, it may be dug up by animals and he so he suggested a cremation and the group agreed. After six months of barely tolerating Veer's presence in the group, Roche had had enough and on the 14th of September he concocted a story involving Veer beating Samuel to death and demanded that he now stand trial for his misdeed. Roche set up a mock trial complete with coroner, prosecution, defence and jury. Samuel's father Jacques was appointed judge and after an hour's deliberation his verdict was passed. Veer was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Roche was wholly unimpressed by this outcome and he took Jacques aside and suggested Veer to be castrated. The group put it to vote and seven voted for the motion while Jacques, Maurice and Giselle voted against. Despite this reluctance by Samuel's own parents, Democracy had spoken and Roche set about talking Veer into submitting to the verdict voluntarily. He suggested to Veer that as a eunuch his headaches that he had been complaining to Roche about previously and his masturbation habits would both be cured. Not only that but it would see Veer promoted above the station of groups. He then made Veer write a letter of consent and finally left the decision on whether or not to sign the letter in Veer's own hands. He signed. Roche carried out this surgery on the kitchen table. This consent was obviously limited, however, as on the 5th of November, he fled to the nearby town of St. Jogues and spilled the story of Samuel's death. However, he changed the facts, claiming he was kicked by a horse. Even after everything he had suffered under Roche's hand, he was unable to turn him in. Nevertheless, Veer's testimony was enough for police to raid the commune. Members of the group protested, parroting the story that Veer himself had beaten Samuel to death, but police went ahead and arrested Rock, Shaq and Maurice. The coroner found the group to be criminally responsible, and during their trial, verdicts were passed. Ross, Shaq, Maurice, Gabrielle and Veer were charged with criminal negligence causing bodily harm, whilst Claude was charged with obstruction of justice. Jacques, Maurice, Claude and Solange were further charged with neglect towards their children, and Roche and Gabrielle were charged with bodily harm with intent to mutilate for their work on Veer's castration. All of the accused pleaded not guilty and all were unsuccessful in their defence. The group's children were distributed into foster homes throughout Canada and on September 29, 1982, their sentencing was passed. Jacques, Maurice, Claude, Solange and Veer were all released on the condition they were not to return to Eternal Mountain. Roche and Gabrielle, however, were denied bail, classed as a danger to society, 
and Roche was sentenced to two years prison with three years probation and transferred to Orsonville Detention Centre in Quebec. During his prison sentence, the group moved to Quebec, renting four apartments allowing them to be close to their leader. The police meanwhile burnt Eternal Mountain to the ground. At this point, one would expect that we've reached the end of the story of Roche Terrio. The sad truth, however, was that Roche's reign of terror was just beginning. Roche Terrier was released from prison in February of 1984 and greeted with open arms by his devout followers. They suggested that they should collectively rent a house in Quebec, but Roche had other ideas. Since the last cabin adventure had gone so swimmingly, he instead convinced them to do it all over again, and on April 15, 1984, Roche and his gang set out to Somerville Township in the English-speaking area of Burnt River in Victoria County. Roche, of course, was the only English speaker in the group, and therefore their isolation would be absolute. By May of 1984, construction had started on a new cabin on Lot 4 Concession 5, a small patch of land which upon they built a cabin, kitchen, bakery, maple sugar shack, smokehouse, root cellar and a stone sanctuary for worship. Roche designed and built a sawmill from old machine parts and a horse-drawn watermill. It all sounds so idyllic, but the reality was far from it. Roche established a hierarchy amongst his wives, and Maurice, who had never fully given in to the group, still tagging along for her husband's sake, was bottom of the pile. Roche forbid Jack from sleeping with her, cast her out to a separate hut, encouraged Jack to beat her, and convinced the group that a birthmark that she had resembled the mark of the devil. Despite setting up a somewhat self-sufficient little enclave, the group still needed the support of the government to fully sustain itself. However, Victoria County classified their household as a company rather than a family, and this left the group meeting a severe shortfall in funding. Instead, they took to shoplifting, stitching special pockets inside winter coats to aid in the job. On January 31, 1985, police caught Jacques shoplifting in the nearby town of Lindsay, and later tracked Gabrielle, Claude and Nicole doing the same. Between them, the group had over $430 worth of produce in their specially made pockets, and they were banned from ever setting foot in Lindsay again. Instead, they began selling fruit and pastries cooked in their bakery in a small pop-up shop by the roadside. This actually worked out reasonably well for the group, and Roche officially established them as a company, naming them the Ant Hill Kids for the way in which the group worked together like a nest of ants. Despite their limited success as bakers, however, Roche once again began drinking heavily, and the spiral into violence and destruction started once again. His tirade against his followers included making the women nude wrestle. He forced the men to stand in the centre of a circle of the women whilst they punched and kicked them. Roche routinely punched and whipped them, hit them with hammers and urinated on them. If any of them sustained any severe injuries, he forbid them from visiting the hospital. After his bouts of violence, Roche would cry and beg God to stop using him as a tool to implement the Lord's justice. In a letter from Solange, we can see just how effective this was for his followers, who were now so downtrodden they actually felt the beatings atoned them for their sins. Good day Moses, my master. 
I would have liked to have talked to you yesterday evening, but I think it is preferable to write these things down rather than saying them for fear of talking too much. I am going to talk to you about the last fit of anger that your master exercised through you. I really believe that what you did doesn't come from you, but from someone much higher. For my part, I really believe that you were possessed by a very powerful spirit. That's what I saw in what you did. The throwing of the knife, the rifle shot, the harm done to Mammy. Her eyes saw things that went beyond them. My body is very afraid of all of these things. I understand it very well because of the law of death in which it exists, but within myself I am well. I am very well and very happy to belong to a real master who himself belongs to the only real master of life. Love, Rachel. On the morning of January the 26th, 1985, Gabrielle left her five-month-old infant outside in minus 10 degree temperatures, lying in a wheelbarrow where he promptly froze to death. Roche had previously stated how much he had hated the child and how it had been marked by the devil. Bizarrely, the county coroner, Al Lackett, judged the baby to have died from SIDS. However, the local children's aid society took note of this and began watching the compound very closely. In October of 1985, Maurice Grenier had finally seen enough. She demanded to leave, and as the only woman of the group not married to Roche, this was not seen as any real problem as far as he was concerned. He allowed her to go on the condition that she leave behind her eldest daughter, who Roche had lined up as his next wife, and she agreed, turning tail and booking it out of there with her two-year-old infant, leaving both her daughter and husband behind. She wasn't done, however, and as soon as she found her bearings in the outside world, she hired a lawyer to regain custody of the daughter she had left behind. She testified to the awful conditions they were living in on the commune, and the Children's Aid Society stepped in, removing all the children, once again sending them off to foster homes throughout Canada. Now in the outside world, the children told of horrific violence and abuse against them carried out by Roche, including depriving them of sleep, food and education. Roche would hold blood sacrifices in front of them, killing a goat and smearing himself in its blood and sexual abuses which, frankly, do not need repeating. All this was done in the aid of Roche's sexual instruction. The courts ordered an independent assessment be made on the Ant Hill kids, and when Dr. Rial Hunot and Dr. Martin Milkovich visited the group, Roche greeted them with his most charming smile. When they handed in their 300-page report, it actually championed Roche as an alternative living pioneer, accused the government of persecution against the French-speaking population and suggested the children to be returned immediately. Fortunately, the court saw through all of this and rejected the report, and on October 26, 1987, it ruled Roche as a manipulative despot, that the independent papers submitted by the psychologists were not objective and showed signs of positive prejudice and removed parentage rights from all members of the group for the children that were now in foster care. During this time, Roche had met the Latter-day Saints branch president and forensic psychiatrist Jess Grosbeck. Originally attracted to the concept of Mormonism due to their views on polygamy, he spoke regularly and formed a close relationship with Grosbeck, discussing their alternative views on alternative living and theology. And still, back at home, the violence grew worse. As hinted at in the earlier letter from Solange to Roche, he took to acts of ceaseless barbarity. 
He broke Jacques' ribs with an axe, burnt Nicole's stomach and Josie's back with a blowtorch. He beat a three-month pregnant Nicole, causing her to miscarry, and he shot her in the shoulder with a 303 calibre rifle. He broke Giselle's ribs with a pair of steel-toed boots, sliced Claude's arms open with shards of glass, pulled 11 of his teeth with a pair of pliers, and had one of his wives break Claude's legs with a sledgehammer. He eventually ordered Claude to wrap a rubber band around his testicles, and when this caused obvious side effects, he castrated him, cauterizing the wound with a piece of hot iron. At one point, he even took a vote for stoning Claude to death, however the vote failed much to Roche's dismay. He tossed a hunting knife into Giselle's leg, causing a deep gash in her thigh, and when it clotted, he filled the wound with olive oil, salt and spruce gum to keep away infection. Roche was quite the man of medicine, and he demonstrated this further when in the fall of 1988, Solange fell ill. Roche diagnosed her with some kind of kidney ailment and suggested immediate surgery. He cleared off the bakery table, made her strip naked, gave her an enema of molasses, oil and water and then cut open her stomach, removing a random slice of flesh in the process. He then ordered Gabrielle to stitch the wound and declared her cured. By morning, Solange had died of peritonitis, a fatal leaking of her digestive fluids into her abdominal cavity. Surprisingly, this failure did actually affect Roche, and he ordered Jacques to shoot him, as well as attempting to overdose on Tylenol. Unfortunately, he failed at this too, and on October 16th, 1988, he met up with Dr. Jess Grosbeck, his new Mormon contact. He told the doctor that Solange had died, however in this version of events, it was from a spontaneously erupting vein rather than Roche's failed surgical hash, and Grosbeck reassured him that this was not his fault. Then things got a little weird. Roche told Grosbeck that he was his guide, as conveyed to him by God. He told him that he had seen visions in dreams of Solange inside himself and images of Solange taking shape from his semen. However they managed to come up with the next conclusion is beyond any sane person's comprehension but the pair decided that this had to mean that Roche was in fact now pregnant with the dead Solange and that he was to give her a spiritual rebirth. Roche immediately arranged for a marriage to be concluded between him and the dead Solange and dressed in his best costume jewellery, he ordered the exhumation of Solange's grave on the commune's land. He then drilled a hole into Solange's skull and masturbated into it. He reburied her and convinced himself that this whole macabre affair would bring her back to life. Possibly through fear of further desecration, Giselle told Roche that it was Solange's wish to be cremated, and so Roche once again ordered her to be exhumed. He took one of her ribs, which he wrapped in a sheath of leather and kept upon his person from then on, and the group burnt her remains. Not content with just the one rib, however, Roche filled a small jar with ashes and olive oil and kept that too masturbating into the jar at times to ensure the rebirth was on track. It appears as if things were finally falling apart upstairs to a point of non-function for Roche, and in reality things were falling apart equally as fast. Roche visited Grosbeck once again and entrusted his two-year-old son to his care in fear that the Children's Aid Society might take him away. Grosbeck argued with Roche about his treatment of his wives and the pair parted ways on poor terms though the child was left in the care of Grosbeck regardless.
During the winter of 1988 and 1989, Josie ran away from the compound, and by the summer of 1989, everything was appearing to be in tatters for the anthill kids. Rosh, however, was not going to go out without a bang. On July 25th, 1989, Rosh decided that Gabrielle's aching finger needed surgery. Not content with actually operating on the said finger, however, he took her once again to the kitchen table. He stabbed a knife through her hand, and halfway between elbow and shoulder, he cut her arm to the bone. Gabrielle ran away to a woman's shelter, but Roche promptly convinced her to return. He then finished the job on her arm, cutting it off with a meat cleaver. He proceeded to leave it a few days before cutting out the infection and cauterizing the stump with a heated metal bar. Over two weeks later, Gabrielle finally took off, and this time she didn't return. She made her way to the hospital and concocted a story that she had been in a vehicle accident. However, police were called and they filed charges of aggravated assault against Roche. On August 19th, they visited the commune only to find the anthill kids had all fled, either to Quebec or back to their families. On October 6th, 1989, police caught up with Roche and on the same day, Giselle told police about Solange's death. Roche's reign was finally done. Everyone trialled pleaded guilty and Roche Terrio was sentenced to 12 years prison. Though this was actually reduced to 10 years after the judge ruled he had shown genuine remorse and concern for the victim. Apparently despite his mental collapse, he still knew how to turn on the charm when it was needed. During his trial, he merely stated in his defence, If she says I did it, then I did it. Shaq was sentenced to five years, Chantal two years, and Nicole 18 months prison. Police also pressed charges against Roche for first degree murder, however there proved to be insufficient evidence to show that it was premeditated, and his lawyers made a deal to settle for a charge of second degree murder if no further charges were to be brought against Roche. His final sentence handed down to him on January 18, 1993 was life imprisonment, due for release in 2014. Roche served his sentence and was denied early parole on several occasions. He wrote poems and made artwork which sold online and throughout his incarceration he still took visits from three of his wives, Francine, Nicole and Chantal. On February 26, 2011, aged 63 years old, three years before his release, Roche was stabbed to death in his cell following an altercation with another inmate. His children, of which there are a minimum of 22 and possibly more, were given to foster families throughout Canada and presumably they went on to happy lives, including his infant son and heir, who he left in the care of Jess Grosbeck. John Huke, a member of the Burnt River Council when the cult were active in the region, said of his death, It was too bad a prisoner had to give justice, because Canada doesn't give justice to people like that. A sentiment which, aside from his three most devout wives, will most likely be shared by many. Well, that's Roche Terrio. For those that got to the end of that, you're probably going to be needing a break now. You lucky people, have I got an advert for you? We'll be discussing Roche Terrio and cults just shortly after this ad break. What are you using to listen to this podcast tonight? 
If the answer is some raggy headphones that came with your device, then listen up. This episode is sponsored by Studio Headphones. Studio are a Swedish headphone manufacturer that sells stylish-looking Bluetooth headphones that are rated for 24 hours of battery life. Studio say they want to bridge the gap between stylish headphones and high-tech audio to offer headphones that both look and sound good. Right, now that's the marketing gubbins out of the way. Let's do some real talk. I've been demoing their region on-ear model this past week or so, and I've got to say, they actually, they do look really good. Uh, They're small, and they're comfortable, and for me, they fit really nice, and my ugly face is pretty narrow so when i wear on-ear headphones i always end up looking like a some kind of like crazy robotic monkey but to be fair with the studios they actually fit pretty snug and and they look pretty sleek being as outdated as i am these are also the first wireless headphones that i've ever used and being able to sort of kind of potter around in my house and get on with things whilst i listen to podcasts on a bluetooth headset it's got to be said it's, it's been kind of a revelation and I'm actually a bit of an audiophile nerd. So, you know, I've always been a bit suspect about things with without hefty cables, but having no wires, it's, it's been like a real joy. So yeah, they come in both black and white models, fold up to fit in your bag, and gents, I'm still talking to you. Man bags aren't made for actually carrying things, I know. But these fold down nice, so we don't have to ruin our sassy man bags when you put them away. They connect real easy to your Bluetooth device. I've had mine going on my phone, my Echo Dot, my PC. And once they're paired up, you just touch a button on the side and off you go. If you fancy checking them out, head over to studio.com and if you do decide to treat yourself to some new headphones, whack in the code DARKHISTORIES, which is all one word, at checkout for 15% off. So that's 15% off right there and free worldwide shipping. Alright, enough of all that. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So for those that made it to the end of that, I hope you don't really have any plans on sleeping anytime soon. Uh, Full disclosure, there were parts of that whole story that I glossed over to a certain extent. There were certain abuses which I just thought they didn't really need detailing. So if you do want to know the ins and outs of everything that Roche Terrio did, There are a couple of books you can get. One's called Savage Messiah by Paul Kyler and Ross Laver and another called The Cult Files, True Stories from the Extreme Edges of Religious Belief by Chris Mickle. And that's a sort of a compendium of various cults, but it does document the the Anthill Kids quite well. So yeah, if, if you really want to know the ins and outs of the gruesome child abuse that went on and some of the sort of really grisly details of the surgeries then pick up one of those two and you'll 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 get to the bottom of it um but you know you know I, i don't didn't really think they added anything to the story as far as you know as bad enough as it was um so i just sort of glossed over them to a certain extent now all the facts were there you you know if you listen to my story you got what you needed to know but yeah just to let you know there if you if you want to get into it deeper, those two books, they cover it pretty well. Um, yes, I mean, there's no mystery, so not a lot to discuss. But, I mean, you have to say, like, how how did he get away with it for as long as he did is absolutely beyond me. 
even if he was a sweet talker, and a lot of people said, you know, he was charismatic and intelligent, as they always are, these cult leaders. And when he, they, people came to investigate the child abuse cases and things like that, and the psychiatrists, he might have been able to sweet talk them, but can they just see with their own eyes the evidence of, you know, the malnutrition and those sorts of things, the living conditions? How did they, how did he get away with it? It's just absolutely baffling. You've got to think that somewhere along the line there, the police and the, well, the authorities in general dropped the ball on what was going on. I mean, it's just bizarre. I suppose it helped that it was such a small cult, but it's just bizarre how he got away with it. And, you know, how did he swing it with the cult members for so long? And you always read these or hear these or see, you know, stories of cults. And you always makes you wonder, like, oh, come on, these followers, how on earth are they still following these people? And I think this story, above all, goes to show, you know, it's, it's a testament to how badly downtrodden these people actually get and how destroyed their self-esteem actually is that they stay throughout all of that. And yeah, it's, it's just a testament to how badly they are beaten down and, you know, how difficult it is for us, luckier people who, you know, have never fallen foul of a cult to place ourselves into their shoes, you know, into the shoes of the people that have. Because you, you read the letters especially, you know, and they're getting battered by this guy and they're writing letters to him telling him how they don't think it's him and it's, you know, the Lord working through him and and that they love him. And it just, oh, it's just cringe, isn't it? It just makes you think, how on earth? But, yeah... It has to be said that that's a particularly brutal story we did this week. Um, so it's not a mystery. So I don't think I really want to talk about it much more than that, to be honest. This is a bit of a funny one though, where I probably wouldn't have gone through with this episode if I hadn't been so invested. But I'd run out of sort of time and I'd already invested considerable amount of time into it I'd taken like pages of notes and I'd like read a book about it before I sort of started writing it up and started thinking to myself this is pretty hardcore um but by that point like I say I think I'd already invested far too much into it so I just kind of went went with it um I hope you know you enjoyed it as an episode or or I don't know if enjoy is the right word perhaps you know found it interesting is is possibly the better word but i suppose if anything this episode works as a barometer for me you know personally um i'm not really sure how darker sort of subject matter people really want to hear so you know it works as a bit of a barometer in that sense to talk about something a little bit more lighter something that made me think if you've ever read alex garland the beach or you know the film came out so i suppose if you've ever seen the film but the book more so this whole event really reminded me of yeah Alex Garland's The Beach and it and it did make me wonder how much of this story Alex Garland had researched or read into before he wrote The Beach don't know perhaps not perhaps none at all but 
a lot of these things really reminded me of the beach. So I'd be interested to know if anyone else got that vibe as they were listening to it. Anyway, with this episode, I say there's not much for mystery. There's not much more to talk about. I'm pretty much done with it. So I think we should just move on. Uh, if you do want to chat about it anymore, there will obviously be people on the Discord. If you want to jump on there, hop on. So let's move on. We got some listener emails. If you ever want to contact me, you always can. Contact at darkhistories.com on the email. We got this one from Dave. Dave says, Love the podcast. Can you possibly try to make some episodes on weird or strange Australian phenomena? Apart from that, fantastic work. Keep it going. Well, cheers, Dave. Thanks very much for your nice words. Um, I'm going to do my best. I spent the last week having a look through sort of Australian weird tales from Oz. You know, I like to spread it out as much as I can and make the stories as global as I can. I know I've got a couple from Japan on the list, one from Thailand, uh, one from the Philippines. And yeah, I would like to get it spread out as much as I can. And I didn't, I realised when you mentioned actually that I've only, I think, done one episode set in Australia. So, so yeah, absolutely will be. So I checked out this week for, to find some good sort of mysteries and weird stories from Australia. If anyone's got any suggestions on that front, feel free to let me know. So I, I did jot a couple down. But yeah, thanks very much, Dave, for those suggestions on that. And thanks for the kind words. We certainly will. I uh, got this email from Ashley, and this was about the Jameson family. Ashley said, Hi, I'm Ashley from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the US. I love your podcast. History and true crime are two of my favourite subjects, and I really enjoy the mystery behind each episode. I have a long daily commute, and your podcast gives me good company along the way. I almost enjoy driving because I get to listen to it. Well, Cheers, thanks for that. I'm glad you almost enjoy driving. I think we need to step up a gear at Dark Histories because I need to make it so that you definitely enjoy driving. Um, but yeah, then Ashley goes on to give a long, well-thought-out theory about the Jameson family episode. And i sort of bit guilty, have to admit, that I don't remember the details that well. I often say, so I write these episodes, but I often forget the details once I've released them because... I'm writing new episodes so soon after the release of the last one. So what I will say is hop on our Discord and there's definitely people on there that enjoy discussing the theories. And I enjoy it as well as as much as I can remember, but there are some things that I don't remember. Um, But quite often it'll prompt me to sort of dig up things that didn't make it into the episode or, or... PDFs that I found and things like that, and I tend to try and share those with the Discord. Um, once they start, if you know, if, if anyone brings up particular episodes, and I've still got research materials from them, um, so yeah, jump on there if you want to chat. You know, we last week one of our Discord chats, Bark and Parkin, she actually posted a photo of Elliot Ness's headstone because she lives so near to it. So yeah, that was awesome. So yeah, hop on there, talk theories. Say, sorry, I couldn't give you any direct reply to your email because I was just sitting there thinking to myself, Jameson family, Jay- what one was that? <laughs> and I had to kind of go back and look over and actually see, oh yeah, okay, I remember that now. So yeah, you know, I forget a lot of the details, but thanks very much for your email. I say, always do enjoy reading people's theories say i don't often feel qualified to make sort of judgments or get too deep in discussions unfortunately because say it tends to be sort of in one ear out the other as far as making episodes go i'll I'll sort of 
take all the information in and then as I'm writing them it's almost like a catharsis it's almost like I write the episode and then dump the information at the same time so some of the older episodes I'm not super up on but I absolutely enjoy talking theories so yeah jump on discord if you fancy a bit of that and last email I got I think was from a woman called Kelly she's a fancy pants archaeologist and screenwriter check that out we only get the best here and she suggested Eliza Lamb as a subject and I will definitely do Eliza Lamb at some point I've definitely been on that since day one it was I've got a list to say I mentioned it a few times but I've got a list of subjects and Eliza Lamb is bang on the top of it it was one of the first episodes that I wrote down so I will get to that at, at some point um, as soon as possible so yeah thanks for reminding me about that Kelly also had some great reviews thanks for that had a not so great review not so thanks for that I suppose you can't win them all but uh, if you'd like to leave a review that would be awesome doesn't have to be good if it is it's great but I'm I'm not going to sit here begging for five stars just you know speak your mind if you'd like to review that'd be awesome it does help um, if you'd like to contact me save through emails anything you can do so we're on all social media um, pretty much everything is dark histories Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff, Instagram. Um, if you go to darkhistories.com, you can find links to everything, including our Discord, uh, our Patreon. Yeah, our Patreon page if you'd like to support. Um, the podcast is at this point entirely sustained by listener generosity, and for that I am eternally grateful. So if you can support, that'd be amazing. If you can't support, well, keep listening to the show anyway, because it's lovely to have you all. Pretty much head to darkhistories.com for all links on how to contact us and get hold of us, merch, Patreon, support, all of that guff. Oh, one last thing that I will mention. Now we're far enough away from the advert and they're probably not going to listen to it. We're sponsored this week and a couple of weeks ago by Studio Headphones. If you'd like to, I wrote a review. You know, it's my unvarnished opinion on their headphones. So if you are thinking of perhaps, you know, picking up a pair of headphones from Studio. Firstly, don't forget to put in Dark Histories at checkout because you'll get 15% off. But secondly, check out my blog on my website. There's a pretty much unvarnished review on there of them and see if they might be, you know, if, if you're thinking of buying before you spend your money, have a read on that and see what you think. So yeah, anyway, that's all that. Thanks very much for listening. I hope this episode wasn't too much. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with something I can very much guarantee is going to be a little less heinous. So yeah, take care. Thanks for listening. It's wonderful to have you all as always. I'm Ben. This was Dark Histories. Sleep tight. <laughs>